welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence. Today's podcast is centered around beliefs and myths. So these are topics that we see repeatedly come up with clients and with friends and that we hear discussed or see discussed even in the news. They are myths in a sense in that they are not very clear or broadly applied, but they are presented as such and beliefs that really drive and shape behaviors, but potentially not based on an accurate foundation. So we're looking to discuss some of these most commonly seen themes around nutrition, movement, pain, and even lifestyle management, just to bring light and question to some of the things that people engage in most commonly, particularly in the news, and that we can get inundated with. So we're going to start things off with Dane discussing intermittent fasting. My favorite. (laughs) In fairness, though, fasting is something that I've incorporated on and off for probably about a decade now. It was something that I used when I was in my competition career and something that worked well for me when I was in my 20s. Um, Now I don't fast through the mornings. I have a shorter eating window at night, um, but it's not something where I'm like, oh, I'm only going to eat four hours today. That's not something that I'm currently applying. Now, the first thing is just that intermittent fasting is not a panacea. So it is not something that is going to magically just make you healthier or make you lose weight if you skip one meal. And that's how a lot of people look at it. It's really important to note that when I say eating window, that means thinking about when you start your first meal in the day, when you end your last meal. So if I eat my first meal at 8 a.m. and my last meal at 6 p.m., that is a 10-hour eating window. Um, So eating windows and fasting hours are like the 5% or the 10% when it comes to what are you going to do for your health, what are you going to do for weight loss. When it comes to weight loss... 90%, 95% is your daily energy balance equation. So are you eating more than you're outputting? Because then you're probably going to gain weight or vice versa. So if overall energy intake is too high, you can't lose weight no matter how much you employ intermittent fasting. And if your protein intake is too low, you will also struggle to lose weight. So that's the really important takeaway with this is that Before starting something like intermittent fasting, you have to have an idea of how much food and how many nutrients you require in a given day. So before worrying about fasting hours, if you haven't figured out, you know, how many meals do I need to eat in a day? Roughly, what does my energy intake look like? And most importantly, what does my protein intake look like? Then you're putting the cart before the horse and you're going to struggle to lose weight or improve your health. So when it comes to protein, we can link in the podcast from Gabrielle Lyon with Muscle-Centric Medicine. So long story short on that one is protein feeds muscle. Muscle is your largest metabolic organ in the body. So the more muscle you have, the more healthy muscle you have, the more fat you are going to burn at rest. So a lot of times people will engage in intermittent fasting for the quote-unquote health benefits and to lose weight. But Fasting is something that actually enhances autophagy, which is the catabolic breakdown of old cells. Autophagy is something that's happening all the time. Every day, it's a normal process, but it has all these health benefits if you read about it online, and people want to accelerate this. 
Well, if you accelerate this, then you're going to be in a catabolic state more often than not. So you're constantly breaking things down. And that's not just body fat. That's going to be muscle as well. So if you're not feeding your body with enough protein to replenish what you're breaking down, then that's going to cause the body to be in a constant state of stress and inflammation. And the fasting is actually going to have a negative impact. So something that I see quite often within clients that I work with, people will come to me and they'll already be skipping breakfast because somebody has told them once along the road that intermittent fasting is great for weight loss and great for health. So the easiest thing to do is just skip breakfast and then eat all your stuff later in the day. But the big problem with this is that if you actually look at the research, what we see is that intermittent fasting and the benefits therein apply when the fasting is done through the evening hours, not through the morning hours. We're not exactly sure why this is the case, but a lot of the evidence points to circadian rhythms. Just that for humans to be healthy, we wake up with the sun, we have food early, we have movement early, we do all these things early in the morning, and then we start to shut things down towards the end of the day, which allows for proper hormonal production like melatonin to get into a deep sleep and then start that cycle all over again. So people who are intermittent fasting through the morning hours and eating really, really late, they're interrupting this natural cycle that is that we're all really hardwired for and have been for a really long time. So people come to me who are fasting through the morning and they're like, why am I not losing weight? Then we stop that, increase their protein, which is actually increasing calories, and then we see them lose weight. Um, which actually blows people's mind. But this is just to say that, again, intermittent fasting can be done well and it can be done poorly. And so if it's not working for you to skip meals in the morning and you still want to get some benefits of intermittent fasting, well, then it's time to skip dinner instead, which a lot of people don't like. But again, if you look at uh, if you look at the podcast we did with Owen Lacey, for example, he mentioned that he'll have clients, you know, take one night off a week where you can eat dinner later and then start the cycle again. So most of the time you're fasting in the evening hours. We're going to be putting out a blog post on intermittent fasting uh, either this week or next. So look forward to that. We'll put it in the show notes when it's ready as well. But we'll dig into this a little bit further. But this is just to say, if intermittent fasting isn't working for you by skipping meals in the morning, try switching it and actually eating breakfast and shutting off your dinner quite a bit earlier and see how that goes for you. All this is to say that tools that we see popularized by the media are not all bad. Intermittent fasting has served both of us really well at different points in our athletic careers. And it is really important to give your digestive system a break. So on the one hand, fasting and then ultimately binging later in the day means that you haven't started an intermittent fasting plan with a very good strategy and a very good baseline centered around the nutrients that you do need to take in during that day. On the other hand, ensuring that you do give your digestive system a really good break overnight allows you to digest, to rest, and to repair, and to have higher quality sleep. So if skipping dinner seems like it's completely unrealistic to you, but you still want to try intermittent fasting, you can still focus your day around three meals, but have that dinner earlier and earlier as you're able. Again, just like Dane said, ensuring that you are meeting your baseline nutrient demands and not now just eliminating a host of calories that are actually delivering really necessary nutrients to your body. And speaking of delivering nutrients to the body, Freya, did you know that not all carbs are evil? No. (laughs) So this is another one that I like to dig into with clients. And it's, 
It is kind of tricky because, okay, just to say that one type of macronutrient that humans have eaten forever is bad is just kind of a crazy thought. But we do live in a world where the majority of the easy-to-access carbohydrates are pretty bad for health. So anything that's bagged and boxed, processed carbohydrates, sugars, yeah, if you're eating a lot of those, unless you're a really young and high-level athlete, you're probably not going to get away with it very well. So on the flip side of that, going low-carb and keto is, again, it, these things aren't a panacea. You have to apply these types of strategies within the right situation. So carbs are very important signaling agents for the body. What I mean by that is food you eat gives your body an input. And so carbohydrates are going to give your body an input that says, hey, here's some energy. You can use this energy to function your day-to-day existence. So for example, the brain requires glucose, which is carbohydrate, to function at a high level. Yes, it can use ketone bodies as well, but the preferred fuel source for the brain is glucose. So it's something that we can all utilize on a day-to-day basis, whether or not we're all engaged in some crazy intense exercise. Very important to note that. Now, if you eat a high-carb diet and live a low-carb lifestyle, meaning sitting around all the time, you're going to gain weight over time because, again, the signaling here is that carbs are always available for energy usage, and if you're not going to use them for energy, they're going to get stored. Carbs and glucose, we'll just break it down, glucose is always going to be a preferred fuel source for the body over fats. Okay, that's number one. If carbs are available, whether in the bloodstream or stored in your muscle as glycogen, the body's going to use those preferably over body fat. So if you always have carbs in the diet and you're not doing any intense exercise, you're always going to be topped up on your carbohydrate stores. So of course, when you have too many carbs, you're going to store them as fat. So it's very important to balance carbohydrate intake with your energy output. And, and in that, this is where it gets a little tricky with people because like, well, then carbs are bad. I don't want to have carbs. I need to lose weight. And it's like, but we don't have to live in the extremes all the time. Going without carbs strategically will change this type of signaling and help get the body into a better place to burn body fat from time to time. It's not about having zero carbs. It's about being strategic about the frequency with which you eat them and the amounts. And of course, there's a big difference between eating some lentils and drinking a Coke. So don't think for a second that those are equal because they're going to have a very different impact on people, especially if you may be somebody who is already a little bit overweight, may have some hormonal dysfunction in the body. Spiking blood sugar with sugar is going to have a very negative impact on health and make it hard to lose weight. Now for active population, carbs are very important. If you exercise a lot and rarely eat carbs, you will just be under-recovered all the time and be in an inflammatory state basically all of the time, which can lead to health problems as well. So this is where, as people go through their fitness journey, it's important to toggle carbohydrates appropriately. So if you are overweight and you're losing, you want to lose weight, you have to toggle carbs down a little bit, up and down, up and down. As you gain muscle and lose body fat, you'll be more tolerant to carbohydrates, and then you can bring them up. But it's very important to think of those as like, what signal do I want to send my body today? And I wish you were here right now because I'm sitting here and I'm like toggling with my hand up in the air. And Freya loves it when I use my hand gestures right for you. You should ask Mike Thorburn how he feels about it. (laughs) Mike Thorburn, longtime listener, shout out. Ultimately, 
even with the intermittent fasting with the carbs again it depends this all comes down to context and intermittent fasting can work really well if you have a plan carbohydrates are not evil and they should also be centered within your plan if your plan is not to grow muscle and you're not trying to grow height like you're in an adult phase of your life and you're not particularly active then your plan should have very few carbohydrates in it if you're extremely active you need to find the carbohydrates that you can tolerate. I have gone through years of figuring out which ones I can tolerate when in and around endurance season versus more strength building. And it depends. It depends on the season. It depends on what your demands are. And all of that has to be taken into account. At the end of the day, the baseline of all of these things comes down to real food sources. And I'm using the term real, meaning you can identify what they're made of. They didn't come from a package. If you start there in any of these protocols of higher or lower carbs, or as Dane said, toggling, or playing around with intermittent fasting, if you're basing these changes off of real food sources, you will have greater success in the long run. One last thing regarding carbs is that for the female athlete in particular, carbs are essential for hormones. It is really common to find female athletes in various types of athletics, particularly in in endurance or track, who've gone amenorrheic and think that this is normal. The normalcy of this is that it happens to a lot of them. And unfortunately, in the last decade, there was a big push as well towards more keto diets or fat-adapted endurance athletes. Now, this isn't bad per se, but it's a very fine line to walk. And when you go fully low-carb for a very long time and have high output there is a real risk towards losing your cycle and that has a very real risk towards tendinopathies, inflammation or chronic inflammation, bony injuries like stress fractures and impaired immunity long-term. So again, context, very important. You have to know where you exist on the health spectrum, be realistic about that. And again, this is something where a health coach can really help you. Uh, So the final thing that I'm gonna speak to here Real quick, guys, <laughs> is something very important, and that is sleep. Now, a lot of people think that they can get by and just be totally fine on six hours of sleep or five hours of sleep, and that's just how they are. I just, I can just totally get by. I'm totally fine. No problem. I'm here to tell you that you are wrong. That's not a very nice way of putting it. Okay. Now that you're wrong, you are mis- you're being misled. You're being misled. So based on research, maybe 3% of the population have a gene mutation that allows them to get adequate sleep in less than six hours a night. So that's maybe three out of every 100 people. And it's fascinating to me that you talk to people out there and they'll be like, yep, I'm definitely one of those three, 100% one of those three. And it's like, okay, but maybe if we tried differently, we could get you better results in terms of your weight loss, in terms of your health, in terms of your mood. Now, most people who claim to be fine on less than seven hours of sleep, um, this may be triggering to some people, so just watch it. Um, Most of these people are extroverts and very high drivers, high achievers. 
So these are people who typically don't feel sleepy because they're constantly busying themselves with tasks and time around other people or time in the office or time doing activities. These people tend to be slightly manic, might experience highs and lows regarding mood and are very proud like multitaskers, which is really more a reflection of an inability to focus on one thing than it is about getting many things done at once. These people also tend to fall asleep immediately when it is time to sleep, which is really just a sign of exhaustion and that you're not getting enough sleep. People like this also tend to consume caffeine every single day. And frankly, if you're consuming caffeine every day, even if it's just in the morning, you have no idea if you can truly get by on short sleep. So this is kind of the, you know, this is a lot of people in our society look like this person. This person is becoming more prevalent by the day because it's a gold star to be super busy all the time and to get all these things done. Now, 30% of the population now claim to be short sleepers, meaning they sleep less than six hours. 50 years ago, this was less than 20%. So we are getting, as a population, sicker and fatter not just because of food and exercise, but also because of a lack of sleep. So this is a really important thing to look into. If you think you're somebody who can get by on all these things um, without that much sleep, take some time away from caffeine and try and slow your schedule down, especially in the evenings, to see what happens to your sleepiness cues and what happens if you go to bed a little bit earlier. Because you're probably going to find that if you get to bed a little bit earlier, you're gonna sleep more and more and more and realize that once you get to eight, eight and a half hours sleep, which is the sweet spot for 97% of the population, (laughs) that this actually feels really good. So if weight loss and frankly avoiding dementia and early cognitive decline are important, the vast majority of people listening to this podcast need at least eight hours of sleep a night. So don't be like a certain president from a certain country that I'm not going to name, who may be a little manic and not know things, and go and please get your sleep. <laughs> we had to bring him in to this? Oh, good. He shall not be named. <laughs> okay, great. A couple of good resources for sleep are the books Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. He's done a bunch of podcasts too, so if you'd prefer to listen to them, then by all means look him up. We'll link some in. And another one would be Successful Aging by Dr. Daniel Levitin. And he has a good chunk of that book dedicated to the importance of sleep, particularly as we age. And uh, another one that's good for sleep, but really good for the intermittent fasting part as well, is The Circadian Code by Dr. Sachin Panda. Perfect. So again, there's a lot of information out there. Sleep is something that we've written about before, and I believe that we released a podcast a little while back. So if anybody is an insomnia sufferer, we can link that in. And there are strategies there that can help people move through that wakefulness or that constant buzzing sensation that prevents them from sleep. For many of us, it's something that we just need to practice. <laughs> and uh, as simple, as silly as that sounds for something that we technically should be able to achieve, there has been a lot of practice away from what those natural patterns are due to screens, due to the pride of being busy all the time and the societal expectation of that and even more so there are a lot of things that have drawn us away from sleep and if we practice it we can get better at it now when it comes to movement one of the things that we see or hear a lot of is that 
you have to be pain-free to move. And pain is a really deep topic. (laughs) I'm just going to call it a deep topic. So it's not something that we're going to dive into in full. And we've discussed it through a number of other podcasts. And there are some really wonderful blogs out there that are dedicated solely to the exploration of pain and pain science. And we can link some of those in. There are also some great resources and free ebook downloads from leading experts in this field. But from our scope of practice, you do not have to be pain-free to move. There are a number of reasons somebody can be in pain and we're not discussing someone who's just broken their bone. They wouldn't be coming to see us anyway and yes, they should immobilize that. Movement is what might ultimately take someone out of pain. Unfortunately, a lot of people will fear fragility in their systems and if they are in pain, they will reduce their movement intake every single day to the point where they're left with barely anything. If fear is involved, we also have a high potential for kinesiophobia or degrees of it. So that's the fear of movement because we're afraid that the movement will instigate more pain. The irony is if we have removed absolutely everything from our movement diet, we have a high risk of central pain sensitization, which means it takes very little to elicit a pain response or a discomfort response throughout our system. All this means is that the tissue damage may not even be there. There may be some tissue damage, but your pain might be well beyond what it is, or there could be no tissue damage and your pain is still well beyond what is actually reflected at the tissue level. So there are a lot of different elements to pain. This isn't to say that they are, you know, completely fabricated in your head. They come from experience and they come from pattern recognition and memory within that. But the end point is that movement is what might ultimately take you out of pain. So it doesn't mean jumping back into high intensity or just relying on endorphins of a sprint to cover over your pain. It means moving the joints in question. It means addressing all the tissues above and below the site of discomfort. It means bringing yourself close to the ground so that you have less load on your body and finding some movement options there. It also means changing tasks. So instead of quote unquote going back to what you did that you found elicited pain, find another route forward. You can work with people to find this or you can take up a whole new practice and see if that exposes you to new ideas. The idea is that we need to increase tolerance and we need to increase your realm of tolerance. If somebody forgets how to use something or is afraid of using something, let's use your leg for example, your knee and your ankle, ultimately this will cause us to compensate throughout the rest of the body And we build up that narrative of being fragile, broken, or having a bad limb. So these are things that we hear over and over again. There is no bad limb. (laughs) You certainly can have sides that sustain damage or don't work as well as the other side. But if you approach any sort of pain or injury with curiosity and also understand that your stress around it can drive pain, your fear around it can drive pain, and if it is the second or third time that area has hurt, it will hurt more cumulatively over time if the underlying reasons aren't addressed. This is much like an elimination diet. Bear with me with this analogy. If someone keeps progressively eliminating more and more and more 
food types from their diet. Their microbiome becomes so poor that it could become reactive to just about anything they put in their system. And the same is true with movement. So the challenge is if you are outside of an acute phase, meaning you're a few days out from something that acutely hurt you, find a way to gently approach movement again. And for people who have back pain, I often tell them, start with your feet, start with your breath, and start with your head and neck. Move those areas first. They're the farthest ones away from your back, but they also will carry through with huge impact to your back, given all the connections within the human body. Further to that, getting down onto the ground and moving without the load of being a bipedal human can be extremely helpful. You can start to find postures and positions that don't produce any discomfort. And that can give you inspiration to figuring out what else you could potentially do. At the end of the day, just don't stop moving full stop. More and more stillness can actually create rigidity and fear within the system and a sensitivity that is not reflective of the tissues. Yeah, and when we stop moving, we'll see more and more mental health issues as well. And so other, newer, more debilitating things can crop up when we start to fear movement and get away from that daily input. So it's really important for a multitude of reasons to continue to include movement in your day, even when there's a little bit of pain. One of the big things that we focus on is uh, trying to empower our clients to understand what body parts are responsible for what. <laughs> That's a really important piece because unfortunately the way things are presented in mainstream news. Now there's some great people that you can follow on various social platforms or on their educational sites, and that's a different story. But in mainstream media, there is generally a conversation centered around fragility. Humans are unbelievably tolerant and unbelievably resilient. We've made it this far, <laughs> and I think that's testament to that. But understanding what body parts are supposed to do what, how they're supposed to function, can be extremely helpful in understanding what is going on within our systems. When we have someone who's in discomfort and their brain jumps to the worst case scenario, that just tells us that there have been no gray zone, fill in the blank information pieces other than going from back pain to cancer. Like They just don't understand the ways in which that can present. And just being chronically stressed, not sleeping, and dehydrated can elicit back pain without you needing you know, a tumor or a disc herniation. So it's just understanding what body parts do what, what they're responsible for, how they're supposed to function, and that being familiar with that and tuning in on a very frequent basis before pain is there is extremely helpful for moving forward. On the flip side of this <laughs> is the opposite of all this, uh, seeking out pain as, as a sign of doing well. And, you know, I think both Dana and I used to work this way, not necessarily trying to do this for other people, but for ourselves, we used to train this way. So a sign of a good training session was that you were smashed afterwards. And to me, it's just a little ridiculous now. I have no problem with working hard. Neither does Dane. We both do on a very regular basis. And it's fun to push your capacity. It really is. 
But using soreness as a sign of success is not helpful. And this is another thing that we see come up all the time where people are looking for that feeling of being smoked in the face every time they train. It's okay to experience soreness here and there. But if you're experiencing crippling soreness every time you work out, there are a number of things that are going on. One, you're working well beyond your capacity to recover. So this could mean that you're doing too much volume within each session, you're doing more weight within each session than you should, or you're doing more frequency. Added to that, you don't have enough time to recover. So it means you don't have enough time in between training sessions, or you're not sleeping well enough, or you're not getting enough nutrient density and enough caloric intake to combat that soreness. So again, having soreness is normal, especially if you take up something new, you'll get sore. First time I do something for the first time in a few months, I will get sore. But thereafter, my expectation is that I will not be completely beat up unless I have really pushed myself. Way back in the day, (laughs) um, in terms of athletic events, they were very infrequent. In the last decade... There has been a massive increase in every type of athletic event imaginable. Mm -hmm. Whether we're discussing strength athletes or endurance athletes or anything in between. And the challenge with this is that if you want, you could do a marathon every month. You'd have to travel to do that, which obviously is not possible right now. And marathons aren't even happening right now. But in theory, (laughs) they were available every single month. And so there's this incorrect idea that's pitched to everyone just by seeing that availability is that we should be able to do that as humans. We used to have seasons and if you are a generalist it's important to remember to switch things up throughout the seasons and this includes intensity. It's okay to feel rested and we've had to coach ourselves this way and we've had to coach some other uh, clients of ours who are athletes that to have a little bit of extra energy in the tank a week a month is actually okay or every other day. It's okay to not be completely drained. So if soreness is your gauge, it's worth your while to use other parameters or to start to learn what other parameters you can use. How well are your hips moving? How well are your shoulders moving? How much more easily can you do your daily tasks? How much faster were you on that run? You will be faster if you actually allow time to recover. Otherwise, you're just scraping the bottom of the barrel every time. Yeah, and if soreness and being all smashed up is always your gauge of success, I mean, default back to the why. Like, go back to why are you doing this? Like, what is the purpose? Like, are you competing every time there's a chance for a competition because you want to show people what you can do? Like, is it intrinsic motivation? Are you doing it for the wrong reasons? Just really dig in and look at the end of the day. Like, what is the goal you're trying to accomplish? And is being beat up all the time really the best way to get to that? I mean, we could really just say that you have to earn your soreness. <laughs> uh, from a movement perspective, we do prefer that people earn their soreness, meaning they know how to move well, they can execute well, and then when they decide to push, those things are not thrown by the wayside. Now, this last little piece uh, really does carry over into a lot of different things. So this is rigidity. The concept of rigidity in training applies to diet, applies to lifestyle. And this suggests that there's a perfect recipe for success. 
for health, for fitness, whatever it is that your endeavors are. So marketing is wonderful with this because they do such a good job, unfortunately, of convincing people that if you just do these three things, and they are often called hacks, you'll get your perfect insert adjective here in eight weeks. Top three hacks to rock hard abs. Perfect. Thank you, Dane. Now, so just understanding with elite sports or with a very strict goal of sorts, there are strict sets of conditions that need to be trained. There are strict parameters around eating, around lifestyle, around training that all need to be in place in order to achieve a specific peak for a specific point in time. It should also be noted that those are personalized to the athlete. Even athletes have off-seasons, and they need these off-seasons because you cannot live strictly like that 24-7 every single day of the year. For the average population, variability is key. And I know we've mentioned this before, but what variability means is creating sustainability through daily actions. And that means slowing down long enough that you're listening to your body. So regardless of what is put out there, regardless of what your best friend said was the perfect recipe to them losing 10 pounds or what your neighbor said allowed them to run a 10K in under 40 minutes, you have to take into context your life, your body, your body's experience, and what will be sustainable for you. So one of the things that I have a lot of clients do when they express a goal that is uh, well, really extreme from where they're currently at, we ask the why, but then we also ask them to paint the picture of what they think that version of themselves needs to do. If everything that that version of themselves would need to do is unappealing, then it likely means that the goal isn't great. So this is where what I call the why not. <laughs> and it's not as many would suspect negative, it's actually setting the expectations in a way that we can find success and understand what it is that's really at the root of what we're trying to achieve. And if we're just jumping from one shiny thing to the next, especially when we're under the influence of peers or the media, then it becomes really, really hard to create something that's sustainable for ourselves. So if you're not being paid to train, sleep, eat, and recover, none of your decisions as far as your training, your sleeping, and your eating should be based off of what that Olympic athlete in the news is doing. That one seems straightforward, and yet still there are people who are like, oh, that seems realistic. I'll do that, along with the 20 other things that person's doing that's not being told. So this doesn't mean doing nothing just because your life is crazy, but it also doesn't mean forcing the exact same things down just to get it done. So you should be enjoying the process and your movement, your diet, and your sleep should be heading you towards your health goals, but they should also be reflective of the sustainable lifestyle you would like to inhabit. Yeah, and again, it all comes down to context, like Freya said. I mean, a lot of us get kind of sucked into this vortex of seeing like, oh, person XYZ did that, so I need to go do that too because that's going to work for me. And then again, you don't know at all what the other underlying factors were, nor their injury history or health history or anything like that. So again, being rigid in training, you just have to be flexible 
and then you'll get better results. So I guess that our overarching theme <laughs> to today's discussion about beliefs and myths is is really context. And we know that a number of people have been on the news and on social media more than ever just as a consequence of our current time in a sort of locked down world. And context drives everything. And if you feel like you cannot shed light on the context of a situation, meaning you see that intermittent fasting article and you think, oh, it's perfect for me without being able to apply the context to your life and figure out where your basics are, then it's worth either not reading those articles at all or discussing it with somebody. We didn't really want to call these myths because they aren't all of these things will work. So some soreness is okay. Some pain means you need to stop. <laughs> it doesn't mean push through. Uh, intermittent fasting can be really good. Sleep variability, there are a lot of different tools there. So same with carbs. Low carbs is not evil. High carbs is not evil. It all depends on the context of it. So we'll link in a whole bunch of resources here, but hopefully this has shed a little bit of light in terms of thought on what makes sense for you in light of these very popular topics these days. Well, I think that was a great little summary of everything we just discussed. So thank you everyone out there for listening and we will catch you next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.